Well, please turn to uh, Zechariah chapter 5, which was on page 952. Uh, a passage uh, that at first glance, uh, with stories of flying scrolls and uh, women in baskets, you're thinking, it's not probably what I had in mind uh, when I came to church this morning. Um, but I hope by the end of it we will see how hugely important this passage is for us as we think about our life together as a church family. So, Zechariah chapter 5. Now, of the many men that have uh, held the position of Prime Minister of Australia over the years, one of the standouts was a man by the name of Ben Chifley. Now, it's actually quite a surprise that he is a standout because he was only in the position for some four years, which is quite a short term uh, for an Australian Prime Minister. It was just after World War II, uh, 1945 onwards, he was in the position. And I suspect the reason uh, he's been held in such high esteem for so long is a phrase that he coined while he was Prime Minister. Uh, During a speech uh, to his political party, he said that the government was to be the light on the hill for the nation, the light on the hill for the nation. It was a wonderful phrase that he stole from Scripture Uh, that uh, every government that that, uh, took the position of leading the country was to be this, this light on the hill which would call the nation forward, which would help the nation to flourish in their relationships, to flourish in prosperity. And he claimed that as long as he and his party were in power that there would always be a light on the hill. Now the problem uh, for Ben Chifley and for every uh, government that followed him, not only in Australia but all throughout the world, is that Uh, quite often parties promise this, don't they? You you see it in this country, you see it in America at the moment as they head towards an election, this this hope of change, real and lasting change, a a light on the hill which will call the nation forward. But so often that that light is uh, so very dim in reality. There's a little spark, a flare at the start and then very quickly things fade uh, back to normality. And it ends up that this, this idea of being a light on the hill is no more than a dream. And yet if you were here last week, as we looked at Zechariah 4 together, we saw not the dream but the reality of this light on the hill, a group of people doing just what Ben Chifley spoke of. In Zechariah chapter 4, especially in verse 6, God spoke of setting up a lamp on a stand that would be a light not only to his nation, his people, but to the nations of the world, a light that would never go out. A light not fuelled by human might or power or ingenuity or ideas but by God's spirit. It's an amazing vision. That's what we saw last week and really this light is his people. That's what God is doing in his world. He is creating a people to be this light on the hill for the whole world. A light that would call the people back to God. A light that would bring blessing to the nations. It's a great picture. And it's a picture really that scripture has all the way throughout it for a a group like this one that you are a part of this morning. That's God's great dream for us. In Colossians chapter 1 we are described as a people who have been rescued from darkness into his wonderful light. And in Romans 13, the other passage we we just read out together, we're, we're told that the time has come for communities like this one to be that light, to live up to the task. Because we are to be those who know that the night is nearly over, that the day is almost here. So we are to put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armour of light. But I guess as we look at Zechariah 5, the question that it asks is a very important question. It says, will this light actually do what it's meant to do? Will it burn brightly or will it be dimmed? Will it it be hidden? 
And I think it's the question we need to ask as a church family. Are we shining as the light that we need to be on the hill or forward? The light that this, this town, this city desperately needs. Zechariah 5 shows us that the very things that dim this light are obvious and yet so prevalent amongst God's people. Here as God looks at his people, this people that he's raising up to be this spectacular light for the nations, this people back from exile building a temple where God will dwell, he sees how all too easily sin has crept into the very fabric of their community, not only into the way they behave but into their very hearts. This is what is dimming their light. And so God in Zechariah 5 responds dramatically. That's what we're going to look at together this morning. Really he does two things. And the first of those you see in in verses 1 to 4, he sends his word. He sends it to deal with the very sin that has diminished this light, the light of this new community. Have a look at verse 3. He said to me, this is the curse that is going out over the whole land. For according to what it says on one side, every thief will be banished. And according to what it says on the other, everyone who swears falsely will be banished. As God sends out his word, he directs it against the ways in which rather than loving our neighbour, rather than having relationships where we build up others, we end up harming them. Now as far as God is concerned, the strength of the light of a community of his believers is utterly related to the way we relate to our neighbours, the way we respond to them, the way we behave, not only within this community but also outside of it. He says, if that is dim, if our relationships are dim, filled with harm rather than love, so will our light be. And he gives us here in verse 3 two specific ways that we can harm our neighbour. He talks about stealing and lying. But really what he's doing here is he's summing up all the ways that we could do that, all the ways that uh, as we relate to others, rather than loving them, rather than promoting them, we end up damaging them. And so he says we steal and we lie all under his banner, under his name as his people. Now when you first look at those two, uh, especially stealing uh, in verse 3, it's easy to think, fine, you know, I, I've escaped this one. If, if God's word is, is coming to address this, then that's not my problem. I'm not known for stealing. Now, that may be your problem, but I suspect for most of us, it's not. I don't think to myself very regularly of a night, it's time for dinner, I'll go down to the co-op and I'll steal dinner and then uh, we'll come back and eat it. It just doesn't cross my mind. Again, it may cross your mind, but I suspect not. And so we can look at a verse like this and think, fine, I'm off the hook. That's, that's for someone else. That's someone else's problem. But again, we need to keep in mind what God is doing here. He's showing us all the ways that we can harm our neighbour. And so we need to do the work on that. We need to think about our relationships, both within this community and also without it. How could we do that? And think about our working lives, the ways that we can harm others, whether it be uh, the subtle belittling of of a colleague or the mocking of their competence or lack thereof, or perhaps even just seeking our own advancement at other people's expense. I mean, that's just par for the course in the working environment. Or whether it be that we might be in charge of a business and we end up overcharging or underserving, just little things. There's so many ways that we can harm our neighbour. Or have you ever thought of yourself when you're a customer in a situation of, of the ways that you can harm a neighbour? Whether it be belittling someone who's serving you for a mistake 
or their slowness or, or whatever goes wrong. Or perhaps it's standing on our rights as a customer even when it doesn't really matter. Or perhaps our impatience towards other customers. Ever felt that way? Again, down at the co-op, I found myself in the line there, the line sort of dragging down the aisle. There's only one person on the counter and you're thinking, what's wrong here? And you're huffing and puffing. God says those things matter. Well, think about school. Think about uh, your children if you have them. Whether it be the relentless promotion of our child's rights and education. Seems innocent, doesn't it? But it's all too easy for us to pursue that, unconnected to our commitment to care for our neighbour, the teacher, the fellow parent, the fellow student. In any one of these spheres and in many others, there are so many ways that we can potentially harm others. And most of them are small, aren't they? Fairly insignificant, easily forgotten. But what God is calling us to here is to be a radical community, even in the small things, because our relationships matter. In fact, they are directly related to how bright our light is on the hill of forward. God looks at these small things and he says, actually, they're big things. And so knowing what's at stake, he acts decisively. He speaks. And again, in one sense, it seems a pretty bland response, doesn't it? Just words. But the way the words are pictured here in the first four verses, the way his word going out into the community is pictured, is just... So helpful for us. It shows us how amazing a response it really is. Now, uh, every time you hear God's word spoken, as we've just had it read out, every time that you're in a small group and it's being read, every time you're sort of sitting in bed late at night, bleary-eyed, reading the Bible, wondering whether it's worth it, this is the vision that you need to have in your eyes, these first four verses. Have a look at verse 1. I looked again and there before me was a flying scroll. God says, you want a vision of what actually happens when he speaks? He says, it's like my words take flight. You know, imagine a giant jumbo jet, that that moment just as it's taking off, all that downforce, all the sort of the shaking around. He says, that's what it's like when I speak to you. When you pick up the Bible, it looks like a book that belongs on the shelf with all the others, doesn't it? I mean, that's how it was in Zechariah's time. It was scrolls rolled up, put away for the scribes and the priests. But when God speaks, there's nothing dusty or stultifying about it. His words fly. They're powerful words. And not words of of some distant time or context. They're words of yesterday and today and tomorrow. And as the vision continues, we're given further insight into what happens when God speaks. Not only does his words fly, but have a look at verse 2. This scroll is huge. 30 feet long and 15 feet high. Imagine trying to pick up a scroll like that. Words all over it, both sides. It's like a billboard. When God speaks, his his word is on display for everyone to see. You can't miss it. And when he speaks, there are no small words, no nothing words. He speaks of things that matter. Some words matter more than others, don't they? As you think about all the words you hear in, in, in your life, Some words matter heaps. Like the word uh, yes. In lots of occasions, that's that's a fairly nothing word, isn't it? But uh, when it was said to me in the year 2000 after a a 10-minute stumbling attempt at a proposal, that's a big word. Or uh, 2004, when uh, when after a long labour, Liz and I were told it's a boy. Big words, words that change things forever. 
God only speaks those sort of words. And notice how in in verse 3 how universal his word is. We're told it's sent throughout the whole land. When God speaks, his word is global. He speaks to the national issues of our day. His word isn't silent on even the most complex issues of our time. From human sexuality to, to refugees to carbon footprints to knife crime, his word spans it all. But there's more. Not only is his word global, but it's intimate. Have a look at verse 4. Here his word enters our homes, our our private spheres, the ones that we keep to ourselves. Well, God's word is there, right in the heart of things. And for me, this is where, for me anyway, as I was reading this passage this week, the the passage really strikes home. Because we need to get better at this. We need to get better at allowing God's word to do just what it says here in verse 4, to go right into the heart of our homes. That's why I love small groups so much, as we meet in homes with real people, with real situations. That's where God's word goes to work. It's why household reading of the Bible is so important. It's hard to find time, isn't it? But without it, we're rudderless. We need to let his word set the tone in our homes, in the kitchen uh, where the big conversations happen. I don't know about you but in my house that's where all the big conversations seem to happen. We need to let it set the tone there. Set the tone in the bedroom, in the children's room, everywhere. God's word goes to work. Now the final picture that verse 4 gives us of what happens when God speaks is that when he speaks it's powerfully effective. It will remain in his house, we're told, and destroy it, both its timbers and its stones. You see, God's word is a powerful force for change. When when it's met in our homes with repentance and faith, it's a powerful force for renewal and, and transformation. But when it's met with stubborn hearts and sinfulness, it's a powerful force for judgment. God's word always calls for urgent repentance and faith. Now, I don't know about you, but I love this vision of God's word. I think it's so helpful for us every time that we we grow tired of hearing it or reading it. But for me, there's a problem with it. You see, if God's word does what these verses uh, say it does, if every time it comes to us, it judges our sinfulness, it, it roots it out of the community, even people out of the community, it's hard not to feel that every time we hear his voice that we're going to come up short. That even uh, when we meet that word with repentance and faith, that in a community like this, I am a dim light. You know, others might be a giant fluorescent light. I'm like a little candle in comparison when it comes to my contribution to the light on the hill. You ever felt like that? Especially before God's word? Well, if that's you, let me say three things to you. Firstly, welcome to God's people. Uh, You're not alone in, in feeling that way. And in fact, those who don't probably should. And secondly, know how good it is to be challenged by God's word, to be disciplined by it, as Hebrews 12 puts it. It says this, God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. It produces in us a harvest of righteousness and peace for those trained by it. Know how good it is to be challenged. And thirdly, know that God has given each one of us the very thing we need to be this light on the hill. And that's what this second vision in verses 5 to 11 shows us so helpfully. 
he gives us his spirit. He promised he'd do it. Remember back in uh, chapter 4 verse 6 where we see this lamp being set in its place and we're told that it's fueled not by might, not by power, but by his spirit. Every time God is creating something new, something big, something worthwhile, it is his spirit right at the heart of things. It was the case right at the beginning. In the very first pages of the Bible, we're told the spirit was flying over the water when he brought this world into existence. And now we're told in verse 9, we're given this vision of the spirit of God as a bird with wind in her wings. By his spirit, God ensures that there will be a light on the hill. And this vision in in verses 5 to 11 shows us how. Now there's lots of things in this vision, but I want to pick up just two of them, two big ways that God uses his spirit to do this for our community. And the first of them I think you see, especially in verse 8, he calls our sin what it is. And I think this is one of the biggest hurdles for us as we seek to be what God has asked us to be for forward, a light. We fail to see our sin for what it really is. But the passage calls it plainly for us. You see there, verse 8, it's wickedness. I don't know about you, but it's a word I rarely attach to myself. It's not even how we see ourselves, is it? Wicked. But God looks not at the surface, but at the heart. And so in verse 7, he lifts the lid on this community and this is what he says. And there in the basket sat a woman. He said, this is wickedness. And he pushed her back into the basket and pushed the lead cover down over its mouth. When God lifts the lid on our, on our lives, on our relationships, on the, on the things that we were speaking of before in the workplace, in the school and so many other places, he sees the harm we do to our neighbours and he calls it what it is, wickedness. Now why such a strong word? You know, I'm slowly learning the art of the British understatement. Australians aren't known for understatement. Is, is this a case of God's overstated it? You know, he's used this big word to sort of shock us, but it's not really like that. Well, no, actually, he's said it exactly how, as it is. We, we don't set out in our lives, as you, as you wake up tomorrow morning, you don't think, I'm going to harm my neighbour today. I'm going to think of all the different ways I can do that. We, we don't think that way. We may even be shocked to hear we do, and so often. But again, it's his spirit that shows us why it is wicked. Because what it does for us is it shows us the disease that's right at the heart that causes us to harm our neighbour. Something is wrong right at the heart of things and that's what the Spirit goes to work on. I remember a few years ago a friend of mine in Australia was was telling me about a camping trip uh, that he'd been on. He'd gone away with a few mates to a farm. One of them owned a farm so they'd headed there for the weekend. It had been a long, hot drive and so when they got there the, the, the farm was a pretty basic set up, it was just a tin shed and on the side it had a big water tank with a tap on the bottom of it and that's where they got drinking water. And so they all went for a drink and uh, my friend uh, took a sip and tasted very different to Sydney water and at first he thought, oh well, it's no big deal. It's probably that I've never tasted real fresh rainwater before and so I'm not used to the taste. So he he kept drinking and uh, throughout the day they they went back for, for more drinks after working hard. Then around dinner time he finally dug up the courage to say to the owner of the farm, look, I think there's something wrong with your water. It really does taste kind of odd. And uh, the owner said, yeah, I think you're right. I think there's something wrong with it. So uh, both of them got up on the little ladder on the side of the tank and they looked in 
And at first they, they couldn't see anything, but then somehow, somehow a goat had, had got from, from on the ground somehow and it had been put inside the tank and had been obviously there for some time. And uh, I'm not sure if you've ever tried goat cordial, but uh, I'm tipping uh, it's not great. There was a goat in the tank. And I reckon with our relationships it's true as well. There is a goat in the tank. And I suspect we get used to the taste, the funny taste, and it starts to taste normal. But God calls it what it is. You see there in verse 11, this is where we get the key. This is where we see what's wrong at the heart of things. This basket which stands for our wickedness, which stands for the ways that we harm our neighbour. Do you see what happens to it? In verse 11, it's taken away and a house is built for it. Now, at first, it's, it's no big deal. You think, okay, fine, it's, a, it's an odd vision to start with, so a house being built for a basket, I can go with that. But if you've been listening to the visions as we've gone along, you realise that most of them so far have been about another house that was being built, a house for God a house where he'd dwell, a house where he would be worshipped. You see, this basket is being built a place of worship. Why? Well, this is the truth of the matter. God calls our behaviour wickedness because right at the heart of it is idolatry. Our wickedness comes from our worship of things other than God. We turn from the true and living God and we worship things we do it so easily. We, we take one of the good things that he gives us and we make it an ultimate thing. Now, while we might not set out to harm our neighbour, we do it easily because of the things we worship, whether it be our career or our reputation or our child's future. We take these good things and we make them an ultimate. We put them in the place where God alone should be such that we can't live without them, such that our joy comes from them. And it's only when we are ensnared by idolatry that things begin to unravel. We become enslaved by the thing that we've made ultimate. We've made our God and we pursue it as only he should be. Now the thing with the word idolatry, when we hear it, most often we're we're thinking of this sort of dull idol sitting on a a pedestal somewhere in our house. We think, no, I'd never do that. But it's fascinating to see what the Bible actually calls idolatry. In Ephesians 5 it says sexual immorality is idolatry. That if you're you're trapped, if you're caught in pornography or in an adulterous affair, it's because you've made sex your idol. And Philippians 3 says our consumption, our need for more things is our idol. It says your God is your stomach. Or in 1 Timothy 6, it is money, the love of money, the idolising of money. God says this is how we end up damaging our neighbour and this is why he calls it wickedness because we have pushed him off the throne and we've put something else there that can't fill the seat. It wasn't meant to hold the weight of expectation we put on it. We make a good thing an ultimate thing and in the words of 1 Timothy 6, those who live that way are pierced with many griefs. We are diminished by it. Our neighbour is damaged And God's glory is dimmed. So he shows us what our sin really is. And then finally, as we come to a close, you see the second thing this vision shows us and what the Spirit does for us so helpfully. He deals with our idolatry. He sends his word and his spirit 
to create in us new hearts. Hearts that increasingly turn away from idols and towards the Lord Almighty. And as verses uh, 10 and 11 show us, what he does is he takes this thing right at the heart, the goat in the tank, and he removes it from his community, removes it from our hearts, the very cause, idolatry, as far as the east is from the west, he puts it where it belongs, nowhere near his people. You see where he puts it in verse 11? In Babylon, in Shinar. Babylon uh, is the, the symbol all throughout the Bible of human opposition to God. It's where they built the Tower of Babel. It's where they shook their fist at God and they sought to make a name for themselves and, and put an idol where God should be. But all throughout the Bible, for all its bluster, Babel is a doomed city, already judged by God, already collapsing. And so here in Zechariah 5, we're shown that idolatry belongs there. It's judged, it's dying, it's collapsing. Zechariah 5 shows us what a powerful force idolatry is to cause much damage in the community. But we also see God's power by his word and through his spirit to remove even that from our hearts. God uses his word to do that. That's why it's so crucial to us. That's why it's so crucial to our calling to be a light on the hill. So as we finish, let me say, brothers and sisters, it's only if we let God's word fly freely within us, within this community, within our homes, that we can hope to be the light on the hill that he needs us to be that forward so desperately needs us to be. And if we do, if we hold our nerve on God's word, not doubting its impact but letting it dwell richly among us, then we will see what a remarkable community God intends for us to be and we will see the huge impact a community like that can have on a city. Jesus said, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do the people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Let's pray.